Hi, and welcome to the Lehman Krellin Podcast. We're focusing on insights into financial services, mostly out of the UK, but there's also a global component to what we're bringing you. Thanks for your time. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us on the Lehman Krellin Podcast. My name is Damon Baker. Today, I'm with Zoe Keen, and we're going to discuss short-termism for a sustainable future. How you doing, Zoe? I'm very well, Damon. How are you? Ready to dig into short-termism, because when I first heard that, I don't think I quite understood what it meant. So can you give us an overview of what is short-termism in this context? And then it sounds like there are some repercussions for society and the financial sector generally. That is very true. So I believe this is the biggest hurdle that stands between us now and a sustainable future. So let me let me expand a little bit there. So short-termism, in essence, refers to an excessive, you could even say obsessive as well, focus on immediate outcomes, often at the expense of long-term benefit or even future concerns. So it's really about prioritising the now over the future. So I don't know if you've ever tried to negotiate with a child to ask them to hold off on receiving a treat. It happens every day. <laughs> yeah. um, it's it's like we're hardwired for this it, we want that instant gratification mm. we don't want to wait for something that we could receive now instead you and I know we are continually bombarded every day with messages telling us to upgrade or embrace the latest or the new ditch the old which isn't actually that old anyway and this is also perpetuated by the idea that the more things that we have equates to success and happiness and therefore pushes us towards this endless cycle of consumption and instant gratification yeah that is is short-termism ah so i understand short-termism is yeah definitely in in a financial sector or financial setting investors are looking at you know short-term results so what have you seen companies do to kind of manage that really disconnect between short-term results and getting a lot of pressure to deliver on those versus a longer-term sustainability or sustainable outcome? Well, we're at a we're at a crossroads at the moment. I mean, the biggest the biggest issue we've got here is that our entire financial system has been built around short-termism. Mm-hmm. And This is now about redesigning the system and shifting that behavior through mandates and incentives. And and really the key to change isn't going to sit on the doorstep of the financial system on its own. It is about those at the top, those policymakers, those regulators. They really need to start now with a blank piece of paper and redesign the system. And we've, or also known as you'll, you'll hear the industry talking about re- rewiring the economy. I mean, for instance, Steve Waygood, who is the chief responsible investment officer at Aviva, somebody that I thoroughly trust and, and respect in, in all things sustainable, he said and could not have been more apt when he pointed out that our current financial system is fundamentally flawed. It's misaligned with our environmental and social well being arguably it is our biggest market failure so we do need to rewire our economy and that's going to basically encompass re-educating people about prioritizing 
a long-term perspective. But that also, we need to educate people that this also doesn't necessarily mean sacrificing profit as a consequence of that. But how, okay, so how do you, but how do you, how do you manage that, right? Because on one side, we, I think we all buy into the idea that, hey, long-term, to secure our long-term, like longevity, we need to make changes today. But there's always that disconnect, right? Because it's so far in the future. It's not the five-minute marshmallow experiment, right? It's so far in the future. It really is hard, I think, for human beings, especially in financial markets, to think five, 10, 50 years out. So I would, I want to dig into the long-term incentives, right? So it's it's one thing to say to people, hey, we need to make these changes today for longevity. Okay. But what are the long-term incentives and are those effective? So the long-term incentives are that we're now operating within a, what they call is a VUCA environment, which is basically that our our environment that we sit in now, because of climate change, because of the environmental damage that we've we've created ourselves, that we are now, everything is very uncertain. It's volatile, it's uncertain, it's chaotic. And so therefore businesses need to adapt to that and we need to create more resilient businesses that can withstand that change. And so building in a long-term view enables you to build in that resilience to ensure that your business is not going to be knocked for six if something were for instance your your the area in which your offices are a built in a flood area you know you you've got to build in long-term views to mitigate those risks and so that therefore has a financial reward as well again one thing that is in, interesting is that weather related impact on things like property migration political stability think about also food and water security that will impose a huge cost in the future and for future generations and and they if we get to a point that we we don't do anything about it then this is going to have far-reaching consequences far beyond political business and technocratic cycles they estimate that 75% of the global population can no longer live where they're living. Mm, but is there a time time frame on that? So the time frame they're saying there's there's talk of end of century. This is all would start happening to, between now and the end of the century. We're starting to see this now. Mm. We're starting to see areas of the planet which are becoming uninhabitable for certain lengths of time. This is going to happen more frequently. And people will no longer be able to continue living in the places that they currently live. So they're going to need to come somewhere. I'm going to push into that one because, you know, if if we look at the Western world, where are the centers of finance? Yes. It's London. It's New York. It's Hong Kong. Maybe Singapore. And we've got, you know, Dubai, Abu Dhabi to some extent. We're experiencing an uptick in temperature in those places, but it's not uninhabitable. Right. So for us in, you know, in Western financial cities, it's really not affecting us that much. We just, you know, drop in an AC unit and turn it up. Well, yes, there is. You could argue that. And then the second bit is, and if you're telling me by the end of the century, people won't be able to live where they're currently living, I'm going to be gone. That's true. So then the question is, why do I care? Why do you care? Well, 
okay, so I'm in the same situation as you. And, you know, I, we have children and I actually care about the future that I want to leave my child. We are the last generation, you and I, Damon, it's up to us, okay? If you fancy the challenge. It is, we are the last generation though that can do anything about this. If we don't do anything about this, we are putting ourselves in a position where the climate tipping points will start falling and, and that we are at the point of no return. We are literally on a countdown to human extinction. The planet will continue living, it always does. But this is about a human extinction event. And, and, and if that's not terrifying enough, I don't know what is. I mean, for it's instance, it's not terrifying. That- it's not that it's not terrifying. It's like it's not in my immediate vicinity. It's not. So it's hard for me to make sense of such, a, frankly, an obscure event and one that's you know fifty years out. And I, you know, I get the idea about the kids and everything, but you gotta, you know, you gotta bring it to the now. Yeah. And I know that there there must be incentives and in, in whatnot to to match. To, to bring long-term damage into the present. Okay. So what you're doing there is like, you know, there's got to be a mapping between this quarterly return obsession and short, shorter-term climate goals or incentives. Absolutely. And, and I'm not saying that short-termism is something which needs to be eliminated because ultimately it cannot be and will not be. And ultimately we're just hardwired when there's no time to eliminate it completely and 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 it shouldn't be it should coexist next to long-term views ah, okay. but let's if we we can dampen this this message a little bit and so in terms of remove some of this sort of doom and gloom <laughs> by saying as well that there is opportunities and and this is also something that the financial industry need to 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 tap into is that the opportunities that are presenting at the moment are are huge and being in a position to take that on and and to take advantage of that puts puts firms in a very strong position so if you think about the the the, the size of esg investing or assets under management global assets under, under management at the moment they're sitting i believe at about 2 trillion and they're anticipated by 2025 to move up to, I believe, between 25% to a third of all global assets under management. Now, that shows that this is an exponential curve that's moving on up. And to take advantage of that, firms do need to be part of this solution and and, and need to get behind it quickly. Mm. They need to put in place really viable transition plans net zero transition plans Mm -hmm. global leaders and ceos really need to get behind that for a start Mm -hmm. we've got also global policymakers and regulators they need to start incentivizing long-term and rewarding long-term behaviors now how how do we do that so on one side you're talking to me about the carrot which is the financial opportunity totally get that a lot of people are gonna you know get excited about that one they want they want that money but then the stick so yeah, what's going on on the regulatory front? And is there any kind of global coordination on that side of things? 
Yes, there is absolutely, and and there's a, there is a drive at the moment. There's still a massive amount of disharmony as well, in equal measure, because we're noticing a you know if you look across all of your ESG frameworks and standards and disclosures, it is frustrating because there isn't this standardisation or harmony just yet. Mm-hmm. We then get the beacons of hope, which I would I would call the ISSB standards. So the International Sustainability Standards Board have now come out and and created a suite of of standardized disclosures that that can be adopted across a number of different frameworks. That will create some harmonization, which is exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, We're also seeing regulators as well, really trying to push that cultural shift because it is, it all comes down to culture. Yeah, yeah, it does. We can cast our mind back to 2008. And, you know, we all, when you get a chance to look back on something and, and really sort of take it apart and say, what went wrong? We look back on the financial crisis and, and we realize now that one of the, the main reasons why that fell apart so quickly was because there was poor culture across mm. our, our industry. And that's when SMCR was introduced and, and to strengthen those, that, those cultural boundaries. And, and it did a great job. And I think, you know, we moved at great speed to get that in place. We need something similar now. Mm, yeah. You know, we have to build on SMCR to create something really substantive. You've got the FCA, the recent discussion paper that came out. Again, I know that's UK centric. That's not looking globally, but you've got other global regulators who are applying the same ideas as well. But if we look just at the FCA, they, they're really clearly looking here to drive this cultural shift. And, and they're going to do that by incorporating ESG as part of remuneration and incentives. For instance, your average CEO in the financial industry, their average length of tenure through a research study that was done a little while back, I admit, 2009, but they noted that the average tenure for a CEO was, was 10 years, but had come down to six years. Right. These people want to make changes on their clock. Their profit, everything is very profit driven. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you start to peg success against creating opportunities or long embedding long-term value, that's where you need to start measuring success. And this is where you're finding the regulators are starting to drive away from instant gratification in that sense. It, you know, it, it has to be both sides. So it has to be the financial incentive, which is, you know, obviously the commercial opportunity, but then, you know, the the regulatory stick. And it maybe doesn't have to be as brutal as, you know, you're going to go to jail if you don't make these changes. We know that that's not going to happen. But it is encouraging to see that regulators want how companies are handling their ESG risks when it comes to executive compensation. Absolutely. And you've got to present them clearly and accurately. You can't say you have a net zero transition plan in place, which ultimately doesn't work or stand up to scrutiny. And this is where you've got people like Client Earth swooping in. And I'd like to add as well, people utilizing AI as well to look through a company's transition planning and all of their publicly available documentation to really sort of pull apart and raise any red flags where some of these plans aren't meeting the mark. This is very, this is all really useful. I, you know, I've heard heard of some of these issues, but it's good to dig into it. If folks want to dig even deeper into it, I understand that you have written an article recently. I have indeed, yes. And I'm publishing it on the Lehman Crown website. So you'll be able to find it there. 
And really what I'm doing there is is sort of taking a little bit of a deeper dig in terms of, you know, what is short termism? How does it matter? What is what's needed there for a cultural overhaul? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, we'll be expanding on a number of different points that we haven't discussed here. But, yeah, it should be it's an interesting one, one that everyone is really now starting to to pay more attention to. And I think we need to be more open about our shortfalls Mm. and address short termism and start to embrace that long term view. It's just makes sense. The environment that we live and operate in now is 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 very different to what it was before and we need to adapt and if there's anyone that's good at adapting and taking advantage of dire situations it's the financial industry yeah you know creative capitalism enables you know opportunities to be created and money to be made and there is plenty of money to be made if if that's the carrot that needs to be dangled well we will leave it on that very optimistic note <laughs> Yes. <laughs> There's money to be made. There's money to be made. If that's what it comes down to, that's what's going to change things, then yeah, that, that has to be the final message. But be careful if you don't. Beware. There we are. Wise words from Zoe Keen. Zoe, thank you very much. I'm definitely going to put the link to your article in the notes for this podcast. Wonderful. Thank you ever so much, Damon. Bye. As we bring this episode to a close, I'd like to ask you to drop in a five-star rating, please. It'd really help us out. Also, check out the website for more content at www.lehmancrellin.co.uk. Don't forget to join us next time on the Lehman Crellin podcast. Until then, thanks for your time. Goodbye.